Hello, it is 1st of July 2018 and this is episode 71 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. So, this month, Kirsty, is a very special month. I know. <laughs> Can you tell me why? <laughs> because they're going to start filming episode 9. Woo! Oh my god, I was so excited. <laughs> Same. And because you're in the UK right now, that potential possibility of trying to stake out filming locations is not completely abstract. It's, it's not. So it's a knows? possibility, but I'm amazed <laughs> that we don't know anything. Yeah. I mean, we did know what they, where they were going to be filming for episode 8 pretty early on, but I suppose with mm. the whole Arc 2 thing, it was just kind of obvious that they were going to go back to Skelly Michael and yes. shoot elsewhere in Ireland. Um, yeah, we have it, no idea. <laughs> exactly. If I remember correctly, I think the first rumours of location shooting, they started arriving very close to filming. So I think even within like weeks or even days sometimes... So there's a good possibility that we will still find out stuff. Okay. Just a bit closer to the time. Um, But yeah, they are doing a very good job of keeping it under wraps. My personal theory is that JJ is obviously known for his secrecy. And I reckon he was like super embarrassed that literally everything about The Force Awakens got out. Oh, I bet that did annoy him. Yeah. And so now I reckon he's going to be like, right, this shit is on complete lockdown. (laughs) No one knows anything. We do not want them to know. Nothing gets out. Yeah. I felt bad for them last time because it was kind of beyond their control that they had to let people go after Harrison got injured. Yeah. This is one of those things. And then it all Exactly. It's very unfortunate. It's like we really did know like every tiny detail, like right down to like dialogue in some cases which is embarrassing i think the only thing we didn't know the only concrete thing we didn't know is that kylo's birth name was ben that didn't come out Mm. and i remember jason ward from making star wars saying that that was the one thing in the whole movie that surprised him oh really Hmm. yeah okay yeah i i wasn't privy to any of that because i i just didn't care at the time but looking back it is pretty impressive that they got so much yeah no is i think they got cool sheets and call sheets generally describe each small scene like with enough detail to piece things together quite clearly. And I think they must have literally got all the call sheets. Yeah. Nothing like that for The Last Jedi. No, nowhere near. There were some legitimate leaks because we had the blessed Boffin spy who died for our sins <laughs> and to whom we are forever grateful. Um, everything that they said was correct. Um, but yeah, besides that, accurate reports and rumours were pretty thin on the ground mm-hmm. apart from the actual photos from location filming yeah stuff with Dubrovnik yes and some very very grainy shots from Ireland mm-hmm. which is so funny because you look back and obviously with the benefit of hindsight you know exactly what they're doing in those behind the scenes shots yeah. but at the time you're like oh it's the Knights of Wren or oh I wonder if it's like a sea monster that Ray has to fight <laughs> and stuff and it's like ah oh, nostalgia it fueled a lot of good fanfic for the time so <laughs> yes it did it was fun while it lasted that reminds me actually I had this like funny conversation with someone the other day who was telling me about this trip to Dubrovnik they'd taken and mm-hmm. then they said oh and then I came back to the UK and then had a couple of days at home and then I went off to the Dingle in Ireland and I was like trying to work out if they were a huge Star Wars fan and just been like 
going to these places that they filmed the last jedi but they never wow. they never brought up star wars and i was like okay maybe this is just like a weird coincidence <laughs> you went to yeah. those two places in quick succession but <laughs> that that is pretty crazy wow like maybe they're like an accidental star wars fan <laughs> it's like in their futures they're going to look back on that trip one day and be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> or what, yeah, watch the movie and be like, wait a minute. This all looks I all love this. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's fabulous. Um, right, I know that time is of the essence today, so we better get the news moving. Um, it's actually quite a brief news section this time because, yeah, not much has happened. Like, obviously, fandom is fandom in, as you'd expect. But we're going to ignore that this week because, yeah, we've already had plenty of discussions on that. And there's other things we'd rather talk about, like the actual films. Uh, right. So the first thing is that Star Wars The Last Jedi and Star Wars Rebels won four Saturn Awards. Would you like to announce the categories <laughs> that won, Kirsty? Yeah. So <laughs> uh, Ryan got Best Screenplay. Mm-hmm. <claps> Applause. Woo! Um. Bob Doucet got Best Editing, and Ooh. Mark Hamill got Best Film Actor, which is really My exciting. My boy! Yeah. <laughs> and Rebels won Best TV Animated Series again. So Woo, support. Yeah, awesome. Nice. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I definitely approve of screenplay and actor. Like, although I know this will sound salty and like I'm just being a fangirl, but it does astonish me that like Adam Driver has been getting nominated for none of these awards. So I do think that Mark was amazing, but I think that Adam was also pretty extraordinary. So I think yeah. so too, but they could also be saving that stuff for episode nine because then you get the full arc. So he could get an award for episode nine, but really it's for the trilogy. If you see what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes sense. But we'll I see. Hope so. I mean, it's a huge deal that Mark came back and gave such an amazing performance. Like I was blown away by his performance as Luke. And yes. he's still talking about how he found it difficult to adjust to what Ryan had done with the character. Um, mm. And I appreciate his honesty, but I think it's also testament to what he did that he like had these concerns and still gave us such an amazing performance. So, yeah. And I hope that he feels like when he wins these awards that there are people out there who appreciate it because, yes. as we've seen, there has been some negativity surrounding Luke's depiction in the story. Um, but yeah seeing that from other fans and like uh, these awards it's like yeah it it means a lot to people um yeah yeah no definitely it's nice to see it all recognized like i think screenplay is a very nice award for ryan to get as well because i know that he's above like taking too much of the criticism to heart but it must be like a good good feeling when you get that recognition from your peers of the fact that you made this big achievement yeah and i think the I didn't see a full list of the winners of the night, but I know that Ryan Coogler won Best Director for Black Panther. Nice. I think things were nicely spread out so that Ryan could still get one. Yeah. Um, oh, that is very nice. Because, yeah, like, The Last Jedi definitely does feel like a super, like, tourist film in the sense that you really do get the feeling that it's one man's personal vision of what Star Wars should be. And, yeah, I think that's very much on display in the craft of the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested to see if if nine, like if you're, I, I'm not like, uh, I'm not super familiar with Chris Dario's work because I haven't. Um, is it Batman, Superman? Is that <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's the one though, right? That's the one that he wrote. 
Yeah, he he did um, Batman v Superman. Okay, which yeah. I have no desire to watch. Um, the film of his I have seen is Argo. That's the one I've seen too, and that's an adapted thing from real events. So it's not. I don't know. Um, sorry, I'm <laughs> my brain is like not functioning. Don't worry. Do you want to reset and try yeah. again when talking about Chris Terrio? Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with his work, so it'll be interesting to see if when we watch Nine, whether it will feel like like how you say with Ryan, that it feels like this is JJ's vision. Um, yes. And I guess that will depend on how it fits with what he did with The Force Awakens as well. So, Yeah. My personal theory as to what's going on with JJ and Chris Terrio is that JJ will largely be like dictating the beats that he wants. He probably has a story in mind that he wants to tell. Then he gets Chris to actually write all that out, like Mm. as a proper screenplay. Then it goes back to JJ so he can go over it and give it his refinements and make sure the characters sound like the characters and are doing what's natural for them, that sort of thing. Obviously, that's just a theory. I don't know how they're actually going to be working together, but that's kind of what I'd expect. I think that makes sense if JJ's getting joint credit for writing. So, Mm. I mean, I think him and Lawrence Kasdan work pretty closely as well, so... Yeah. I think often when it's a collaborative screenplay, it does tend to go like that. So it's one person takes a pass, the other person takes a pass, and so on and so forth until they both get it right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, we're talking about episode nine again when that's not <laughs> what we're supposed to be talking about. Right now we have a one-track mind, okay? Yeah. We really want episode nine. <laughs> on the subject of episode nine, yes, um, the Poe comic has some interesting tidbits in it about Rey and the Jedi text. Yeah, so I, I think it may be last week's um, issue, I'm not sure, but um, it showed Rey trying to read the Jedi text, but C-3PO helped her because obviously he is very proficient in many languages. <laughs> um, so, do you want me to read it out here, what he says? Yes, please. So he says, don't worry, Miss Ray. I dealt with those silly droids. They won't bother us any further. Now, where were we? This passage here, 3PO. Ah, yes. I must say, these old Jedi texts are extremely ancient. The languages used are unusual, to say the least. Can you read it? To a degree. I wouldn't rely on this translation for diplomatic purposes. (laughs) But it seems to say something like, the force is the light, the force is the dark. Jedi choose the light for all it reveals. Ah, you know, I like that. Seems like a lovely place to begin. <laughs> oh, that kind of feels like the point where, like, if it were like a sitcom, that'd be the point where the theme music kicked in. Yeah, it's pretty cheesy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she also has a very cheesy expression in that panel. She does. Although it's well drawn. I, I do think the drawing's pretty good here. I'm sure there's tracing involved, but it works. Definitely looks like Daisy. Yes. Um, but yeah, this I thought this was interesting and worth talking about because this is like the first blow to our initial episode nine speculation right after The Last Jedi came out. Because <laughs> people who listened to our episodes back then, we were talking a lot about like whether the Jedi texts would turn up in episode nine. And it, it was kind of like a toss up, right? Because things can be dropped or just yes. not. They, they don't turn into a major plot point for the next movie and that's totally fine. Um, mm. But we were theorising about whether Ray would be able to read them and obviously she can't, so she needs someone to help her. Um, but I think having this here in the comic is a strong indication that we will not be seeing those texts again. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it indicates that we're never going to see them again, but I'd definitely say it means that they're not going to be like a crucial plot point 
if like something within those texts is going to be really pivotal, I doubt we'd see them touched upon in this way in a comic. Yeah. I think it makes sense if we're going to have a t- significant time jump. Obviously, if 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 like a year or two has passed, Ray would have found someone to help her with those books and she yes. would have gained some level of wisdom from them when she can go forward and we'll see the rest of the story at that point. So, yeah, it was yeah. kind of like a thread that he could have picked up, but it also makes sense that they would be given to something like a comic where you can tell these smaller stories. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I have a theory about what that Jedi text would go on to say after saying that the Jedi choose the light for all it reveals. Oh, really? What's that? The Sith slash Darksiders, whatever you want, choose the dark for all it obscures. Mmm. <laughs> I do think that would work, though, you know, so it makes sense. Yeah. Because I guess that a lot of the Darksiders, they're trying to, like, run from something or suppress something. Yeah, um... I mean, that kind of reminds me of some of the stuff that's in the Revenge of the Sith novelization when it's talking about the darkness and how the shadow can be comforting and you kind of trick yourself into obscuring the truth, right? So that you don't have to face things that you'd rather not. Yeah, it's like a nice warm duvet. <laughs> the dark side duvet. The dark side duvet, yeah. Like, do Americans use the word duvet? Is that a concept in America? I think they'd say comforter. Oh, okay. Yeah, dark side comforter. <laughs> I prefer dark side duvet, though. I like alliteration. We should totally patent that. <laughs> right, then the next story is that Mark Hamill has some new comments on Luke's arc in The Last Jedi. Could you read this out, please, Kirsty? Yep. This is from IGN. He says, There's just such a huge gap between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. I had to really contemplate that. I said, hey... How did I go from being the most optimistic, positive character to this cranky, suicidal man who wants people to get off his island? It's tragic. I'm not a method actor, but one of the techniques a method actor will use is to try and use real-life experiences to relate to whatever fictional scenario he's involved in. The only thing I could think of, given the screenplay that I read, was that I was of the Beatles generation. All you need is love, peace and love. I thought at the time, when I was a teenager, by the time we get in power, there will be no more war, there will be no more racial discrimination, and pot will be legal. So I'm one for three. When you think about it, my generation's a failure. The world is unquestionably worse now than it was then. Yeah, no, I really like these comments from Mark. Um, and I really like how he found a way of relating to Luke's situation. Because I can definitely see how it would be difficult to make that mental leap. Because I think with Luke, it's especially an issue because there's no like materials telling us what happened to Luke, really, between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you get like mentions and allusions to things. And I know there's that book by Ken Liu. But the book, for example, that's all legends because the book is called Legends of Luke Skywalker. So you're not sure about what is actually real in that book. And it doesn't really tell you anything substantial about what he's got up to and what informed his growth as a person. So, yeah, it must have all been left to Mark's imagination. And I think it's admirable that he found a way of grounding it in something that was very real for him and a sense of disillusionment that he really felt himself. Yeah, I really appreciate that he continues to give this so much thought. Mm. This, I think, is a really interesting interpretation. And I feel like it has something to say about like he says, the world that we're in right now, um, that they're, hey, you can vanquish fascism and evil will still rise again over time. It's not like 
you have this one and done thing because you don't yeah. always get that fairy tale ending. Um, and yeah, it's the hero returning with the boon, right? Coming back to the real world. That's what we see in the Last Jedi that he has to return. Um, yes, I think it's really powerful. Yeah, same. Like, and I think it absolutely came through in his performance because. I think the reason why a lot of people are so upset by Luke in The Last Jedi is precisely because Mark did such a good job. Because, like, Mark really sold that Luke was just destroyed, basically, by what had happened. And, yeah, like, was basically suicidal. Yeah. And that is going to be very traumatic for some people to deal with. But yeah, like I think it's traumatic precisely because it's real, which is testament to the strength of his performance. I think it really resonates with a lot of people who have profound regrets in life and yes. have been tempted and sometimes maybe have run away from the things that they've done and not been able to face the people they love because of those things. Um, yeah. And yeah, like you can look into these stories and kind of project onto them whatever issues you you have personally, right? So it's never going to be a one-for-one one thing. That's not the point. But that's what we do with myth, right? We yeah. identify with these characters and it's larger than life, but there's something there that speaks to us all. Yeah. Um, so criticism I see of The Last Jedi a lot is that it just feels too real. It's too real, it's too emotionally raw, it's too upsetting. And that people want these films to be escapism. They don't want to be confronted by the darkest parts of themselves, their regrets, their torments, their like nightmares. You know, and they feel like The Last Jedi is kind of forcing them to confront those aspects of themselves. Which it does, and that's uncomfortable for people, but I still think that's worthwhile. Although I understand that it's just too much for some people and that's not what they want. Yeah, it it all depends on your perspective, I think. And maybe if you're not able to look at it, you, like you have to be ready for it, right? You have to be open to what it might be telling you and apply yeah. it to whatever parts of your life you feel comfortable with. But yeah. um, I mean, at the end of Return of the Jedi, things are so picture perfect that they kind of had to destroy that if they were going to tell another story. Yeah, I guess it's hard for us sometimes because we're definitely not like middle-aged men. <laughs> who've had like a whole lifetime of experiences to like look back on and regret not to say we can't relate to Luke in any way but we're in a very different position in our lives from some other people and I think that maybe if you are from that like OT generation it might be particularly hard to accept sometimes maybe I don't want to psychoanalyze a bunch of strangers but I was speaking to my dad last night mm. about it and I I just think that it depends how, if, if you can be open to it if you can look at it and say hey there are there are parts here that kind of remind me of my own life in some ways and and that's then it's good to see what Luke ultimately is able to do yeah um it's it is inspiring yeah no you're right and like I don't want to give the impression it's all traumatic and horrible and depressing with Luke because obviously it does bring it around to like a positive peaceful resolution for that character so it's not nihilistic by any means. I think he just has like a tough, tough road to go along. Mm -hmm. Right. I think we've beaten that horn. <laughs> so. <laughs> can you tell that the news is pretty thin this week? Yeah, no, you can. No, I honestly, I do appreciate every time Mark says things like this because I love that he is still thinking about it. 
um, yeah. that he's still looking at his performance and the world around him and and maybe even like talking to fans and like picking up on these ideas from people who've said hey this is why it meant something to me yeah sure very cool yeah no he's clearly very engaged like in all ways not just with Star Wars but with the world which I very much appreciate mm-hmm. uh, right then the last thing which is kind of news but not really is that there is a new Shakespearean adaption of The Last Jedi coming out called Jedi The Last by Ian Dosier. <laughs> you made it sound fancy in French. I- Ian Dosier. Oui, oui, Francais. So we're recording really early in the morning for us. And I'm jet lagged, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so be prepared for giggles. Um, right, so... Like, we're not obviously not going to go into full spoilers. And it's difficult to spoil something like this because it is just the story of The Last Jedi rendered in Shakespearean verse. But for your listening pleasure, we did want to read out a small excerpt just as, like, a little teaser to whet the appetite. Right, so this is the hut scene. And I will begin. Alone have I been ever. Nay, thou art not alone. Nor then art thou... "'Tis not too late for thou to turn towards good. "'My hand I do extend to thee in peace, "'as I do mine in the hope of partnership.' "'They reach their hands toward each other. "'I feel the touch and see a future bright, "'wherein the man doth deeds which presage good. "'I feel the touch and see a future sight, "'wherein the woman worketh by my side.' (laughs) (laughs) "'Anyway... That basically, so extra. <laughs> we just wanted to talk about it because there's a lot of good stuff. Not just this scene, um, but obviously all of our greatest hits, our, our faves. And you can probably yes. guess what they are. Um, there's a lot of cute things. Like this, this bit, the, the shirtless scene, where she turns around and it's like Kylo Ren's son's doublet. She said, how shall I speak to this deserted man and hope to focus on the conversation? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so real so very real but then in the Shakespearean one apparently she asks him to put it on and he does yes I saw that Shakespearean Kylo is a gentleman yeah no exactly he listens to his lady <laughs> it's very good so it's Actual little Kylo AU. could learn from that yeah but it's adorable and I really liked the Force Awakens one so I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing uh, yeah no I'm really looking forward to this book as well Um, like they're just so much fun to read I remember getting the previous one on Kindle, but I think I'll get this one like in actual book form. So I think something like that, it especially just makes more sense to have it as something you can actually hold in your hand. Yeah, they have really beautiful illustrations as well. Yeah, so the Kindle version does have the illustrations, but you're still missing something. Mm-hmm. And they don't look as good. They're like poor digital went- renderings. Yeah. No, they're a lot of fun. And I like that they, obviously the nature of it, you get these soliloquies and asides that... I mean, they're kind of on the nose that you can deduce them from just watching the movie, but it's still fun to get them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you get those little glimpses into the inner workings. So then that brings us to our spotlight discussion, which this week is going to be on corruption in Star Wars. We decided to do something a little different with our spotlight just because it's fun to mix things up sometimes and there's not always like a concrete thing like a book or a character to discuss so we decided to look at a theme instead yeah and I was interested in picking this one because it's kind of 
the other side of the coin to what we typically think of in Star Wars, where we have hope, love, redemption, and forgiveness, right? Yes. Um, but to have that, you have to have the initial corruption, and you have to have that temptation for the heroes. Yes. So something interesting to look at from a different perspective. Yeah, no, exactly. You need to like see both angles, I think, in order for the whole theme of redemption to have any meaning at all because you can't be redeemed if you've been perfectly good and lovely your whole life <laughs> you need to have done bad things <laughs> you need to have been tempted so yeah i think we can probably start out by talking about like how this theme like manifests in the prequel trilogy and um, particularly in the phantom menace so like corruption's an interesting thing because it can apply on various different levels so you obviously get corruption like in an economic and like political sense and there's definitely that in the prequel trilogy because one of the whole premises of it is that the republic is corrupt can you remember much detail about the like political and economic corruption in the prequels it does tend to be the part that registers with me the least i must say um i can follow it as i'm watching them but i'm i'm not someone who like gets super into that side of the story it's it <laughs> Because I, one of the things I really appreciate about the prequels is that George did show that story, like you say, where Anakin was kind of this tragic figure at the centre of something that was so much bigger, um, mm. and Palpatine had been crafting this plan for a long time, right? And he was just a part of it. Yes. Um, so, and Anakin's struggle, the fear that he has of losing the things that he loves and then falling into this terrible way of thinking and perceiving the world and thinking that the things he does are justified because of that um mm. it's a microcosm within that universe right it's it's there's something even bigger going on around him that obviously he plays a part in but it all forms this really horrible tragic backdrop yeah the prequels bum me out man yeah no it's pretty heavy stuff I guess that's actually a good point. So I think that the corruption that's evident in the government and the economy, I think that's kind of like at the macro level. So that's about Lucas trying to get us to understand like the much wider circumstances of what's going on. But the real focus is on the corruption that's happening on the personal level. Mm -hmm. So with Anakin, ever since he's this little child, basically. Because when we first meet Anakin, he's just this like young boy living with his mum. And he seems like quite a bright, happy and cheerful child, to be honest. Like, he clearly loves his mother. He likes being with her. He obviously dreams of not being a slave <laughs> and, and, like, getting freedom for himself and his mother. But, like, he loves his mother and it doesn't seem like his existence is too bad. And I really do think that his, like, downward spiral begins when he's taken away from his mother. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of that? oh definitely. I know a lot of people at the time were really skeptical of the idea of showing Darth Vader as this small innocent child, but that's what makes it so powerful to me. That yeah. George really wanted to emphasize that this was a child who had so much hope, so much love to give, cared so yeah. much about the people around him and wanted to go out and do amazing things. Yes. And I think the Phantom Menace is a really great job of showing how corruption can have these more subtle, kind of insidious things going on. Yeah. I, don't, I haven't really heard George talk about this specifically, so maybe he has, and I'm just not aware, and someone can correct me. But I'm not sure how intentional it is when we have Qui-Gon discussing how he's not there to free slaves, 
and it's kind of this commentary on what the Jedi really are for and you get that later with Obi-Wan Kenobi and everything as like a general but that to me is a form of evil it's that apathy right that you can see the suffering and kind of look away yeah so I think the Jedi have this like policy of non-interference for a long time so they're like out there to like maintain like the word of the law but where that law doesn't apply then just not going to do anything so it's very like bureaucratic in a way it's like oh we don't have permission to do this so therefore we will do nothing yeah i think it's interesting to contrast that perspective of what we get in the sequel trilogy especially with the last jedi that um ryan's saying quite clearly through characters like dj that apathy you can kid yourself that you're not participating in it by not getting involved but you actually are because you're siding with the oppressor yeah and that's what they're doing this they're siding with people like palpatine so yeah no that's true and i think that like apathy like creates an environment that breeds corruption essentially mm-hmm. because when a lot of people just don't care the people who are corrupt and who do seek to do things for their own selfish reasons or evil ends like palpatine and <laughs> like people in our real world to be honest um they like suddenly have free reign because they can go unchecked because no one's really paying attention yeah it's it's hard not to think about how things would have gone differently if they have reached me as well yes. because then anakin i mean obviously it has to happen that way because that's the story that's being told but then you think like would it have changed this level of attachment and grief that anakin experienced like even after he left his mother he couldn't stop thinking about her he had visions mm. of her he had to go and save her and then that led to the awful things that he was doing yeah and that then affects how attached he gets with padme yeah no exactly he latches onto her really the moment he sees her and like obviously it's like a sexual romantic love but there's an absolutely legitimate read of that situation where she's also like this surrogate mother figure to him. Especially because of the age difference at that point, yeah. Yeah, exactly. She's that maternal influence that he lost, like in a very like unnatural way. Because isn't Anakin only nine years old in The Phantom Menace? Yeah, and she's 14, but she seems so much older in ways because she has so much responsibility. Yeah, exactly. And when you see them side by side, it is almost looking at like a young adult with a child. You don't register them both as children. And then they, they have that separation. And I know I'm kind of going on to talking about Attack of the Clones here. But um, he that's like the separation from his mother. And then they come back together. And he's thought about her every day since, right? He's thought about her every day for the past 10 years. And it's just such an intense fixation. Um, yeah. Some would say it's creepy. that's like the popular thing i love anakin and padme but i think that there are things that george was trying to say about how anakin wasn't able to lead this healthy balanced life yeah it's sad no it is very sad and yeah like i think that the way padme is treated like in the movies like not in terms of like the like the text in terms of how the characters interact with her in terms of how she was treated by lucas even like is this like kind of strange thing because lucas in general had this weird way of approaching sexuality and while anakin and padme is very much shown to be like this big sweeping romance like it's not really shown to be a great thing to be honest like you know from the beginning that it's going to be doomed because you know that anakin is going to become vader 
and I'm kind of always torn in terms of like are you really really meant to be rooting for this or are you meant to be looking at it as like oh this is a really bad idea <laughs> it's gonna go badly badly wrong like, how do you feel about that uh I think you're supposed to be rooting for it so that you your heart breaks with them at least that's yeah. that's always been my reading but it probably also depends on all sorts of things like how old you were when you first watched it and whether you were so attached to the original trilogy and you were really truly thinking about the fact that this boy becomes Vader because I was almost watching the prequels on their own terms I knew that eventually he became Vader obviously it wasn't like the Revenge of the Sith was a shock (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah I I know what you mean that it's like this obviously tragic romance and it has this whole star cross we're not supposed to be together everything's gonna Mm. screw up because of it but I care so much about Padme as well and she deserved happiness so yeah. I wanted things to work out yeah no I totally get it I, I think in terms of the like corruption thing they very much position like Padme as like the Eve figure kind of like in a way like there's that scene by the fireplace for example when they're in the palace oh we shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly that golden golden dialogue It is, because, like, the Jedi is supposed to be... I mean, I don't know if they're, like, technically celibate, but it's, like, you're not supposed to have attachments, right? So you're not supposed to be in, like, a a long-term relationship. You can maybe have sex with people, but don't get emotionally attached. Go around having lots of one-night stands. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, at that point, Anakin is like, I can't breathe. Like, I am into this into you and it's not going to go away so what the hell do you propose we do yeah um and yeah she's she's like dimly lit by the fire and she's wearing that sexy outfit and it's all very yeah like you say it's not particularly sex positive which is something i appreciate about the sequel trilogy actually and yeah to to your point it's kind of presenting sex and emotional attachment like in a romantic sense as this corruptive force yeah and I think it's also just because of like how those things manifest in Anakin, because he does become so obsessive, so possessive, like in terms of Padme, that it's difficult to look at their relationship and see it as a good thing. I think we also have to blame the Jedi for it too, right? That they because they set these rules for people, yeah, they can't have that balance. Yeah. So this is actually a very natural thing for a young man to experience and feel. But yeah. it's so much more intense because of the restrictions that have been imposed on him by the institution that he's in. Yeah. No, I think that a lot of what you see with the Jedi and Anakin is that they're trying to force him to lead this like deeply unnatural life. Yeah. It is not like a natural state of being for like a hormonal teenage boy to be like a monk and just like completely like selfless and dedicated to this like higher cause. You know, you are like a mess of like impulses and needs and desires. And for the Jedi, it seems like there's absolutely no understanding of that or empathy towards that. Well, the fact that they're like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We should send him to look after Padme by themselves. These two young, attractive, single people. Hmm, wonder what could happen. (laughs) It really does make them look really dumb, to be honest. It's kind of like Snoke with the whole Rey and Kylo. (laughs) Oh, I I linked your minds. Like, "Mm, what did you think was going to happen there, dude? Oh, nothing was going to go wrong with this. Oh my god, that's so funny. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting. So I think, like, basically, the prequel trilogy is to be admired. It is very complex, and it doesn't give straight answers or 
just like provide one answer as to what went wrong. And I think up to like Attack of the Clones, we're seeing like corruption like in various like ways and coming at him from various different directions. So he's corrupt in that he's being forced into this unnatural lifestyle by the Jedi. He's also being corrupted by the sexual wiles of Padme Amidala. <laughs> I know, I know that we might not see it like that, but I do think it's presented like that, at least to an extent, because, like again, the sexy bondage outfit. Come on. Yeah, it's interesting how Padme is depicted, really, isn't it? Because it is this whole like Madonna whore thing almost. The way that, like you say, that outfit is like it's just so on the nose with what they're doing with how Anakin looks at her and <laughs> it does I mean, she says like it makes me uncomfortable and yeah. it's yeah she, she's objectified to an extent because we're seeing the story through his perspective yeah no it's true and I guess it's also because the Padme we see in Attack of the Clones is very different from the Padme we see in the phantom menace Mm -hmm. so obviously you do get to see like padme when she's just handmade and padme like about all the makeup and all the artifice but even when she is dressed like that she's always dressed very sensibly she's got no makeup on like she's like very practical and like clear-headed you know um and then when she's not in that mode she's in queen mode where she's just like made up like this outrageously elaborate china doll and emotionless like yeah, the voice is obviously emotionless yeah. yeah so there is a huge contrast in terms of those depictions because she is very sexless in the phantom menace and then they switch to her being this complete like sex pot <laughs> <laughs> and then we know but like you say that's about perspective because we're seeing her as anakin sees her yeah and by the time i mean if people have watched the clone wars we know at that point that she's had other romantic relationships whereas obviously anakin has not so there's also this notion of her being not only older but more experienced than him too yes and i think in attack of the clones it's also important to say that that's the first time where we really see the evil manifest in anakin because obviously he like has that vision of his mother suffering and in pain so he goes to tatooine and that's obviously when he finds her like dying and then dead and he like goes postal on the sand people basically and just massacres a whole bunch of them so i i think it's very interesting because those first two films they do very clearly follow like a gradient in terms of seeing that decline for anakin Mm -hmm. because yeah we see how much he loves his mother we see that separation from his mother and then we see how that completely destroys him when he realizes what's happened to her. And like that's the first like time he truly gives into his darkness, I think. Yeah. I, I just I can't escape the the creepy unease of the fact that Palpatine has been watching him this entire time. Yeah. Like at the end of Phantom Menace when he says that to him, I'm like, Oh, full body shiver. It's yeah, it's hard to get away from the, the gross connotations of him basically grooming this boy. Yeah. Like, do you know if that's ever been, like, touched upon in canon? Like, in any of the Clone Wars or anything? Like, what sort of relationship Anakin and Palpatine had between the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones? I think he became a pretty close confidant. Right. That pretty clearly becomes, like, a central relationship in Revenge of the Sith, right? So by that point, it's like, you're supposed to infer that that's been building for years now. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And I think that does bring us over to Revenge of the Sith. 
and that's obviously completely a story about like a fall like and about someone becoming completely corrupt and yeah it's so interesting because again like the whole prequel trilogy is building and building and building these like layers of like factors that contribute to Anakin's ultimate decline and yeah like I think that that early scene where Anakin's reunited with Padme and he finds out she's pregnant that's almost like the inciting incident in that movie for his fall because from there like he just goes into this spiral I think yeah it has this horrible inevitability about it right um Mm. it's it's true tragedy in that you know it has to go this certain way so to an extent you could maybe say that it feels anticlimactic because you know it only has to go one way but that I think lends it this greater tragedy um that you can see all of these little ways in which Anakin succumbs to the darkness, but just refuses to acknowledge that that's what he's doing. Um, yeah. So I do think there's a lot to admire in how Lucas handles it, to be honest. It would have been easy to just say that it was because he loved his wife and didn't want her to die. That's why he fell. But it's not as simple as that. Yeah. Like There's also like the fact that he resented the Jedi over separating him from his mother is the fact that he was frustrated because he felt he wasn't getting recognition for his achievements and like he wasn't being allowed a role in decision making and and then of course there's also Palpatine <laughs> who is very much like masterminding things and making sure all the right circumstances are there for his plan to come into place and like Anakin is a crucial chess piece for Palpatine like in so much of like Palpatine's movements across the prequel trilogy, you realise in Revenge of the Sith are all about manoeuvring Anakin, so he's perfectly positioned to fall and be vulnerable to him. Yeah, I think that's what makes it so powerful, that there are all of these different factors that go into it, and any one of those you can kind of pick out and maybe apply to some aspect of your life where there's like a temptation to do something that's not right, but mm. for reasons that you could probably try to justify to yourself. You know, who hasn't screwed over a coworker to try and get to the top? Like that kind of thing where like there's always something that you can think, oh, I was too attached to this person, so made a mistake and it led down this path. Um, I don't know. There's obviously it's heightened, it's opera, but you can like, I find Anakin very relatable because he's he wants to do the right thing. But it, it gets so twisted that he's still trying to justify it to himself at the end. He can't really truly face it. Yeah. No, it's true. And yeah, like it's just very like interesting how it's all like tackled. Um and like I really do love Palpatine like in the prequels. I think that's where he really shines. Don't get me wrong, I love him Return of the Jedi, but you really get to understand him and what his plan was in the prequels. So completely evil. <laughs> yeah, no he is. Like he's basically like Satan without the good looks. <laughs> Hey, young like, Palpatine. Good guy. Yeah, maybe he was like a hottie. Yeah, like <laughs> so. I guess we only really see middle-aged Palpatine. Kind of like lost something of that special charm. Still waiting on the Star Wars story. <laughs> oh my lord. Yeah, maybe he's like a male model or something. But yeah, no, Palpatine is interesting because he is clearly the most corrupt character. 
like in the prequels in that he is corrupt from the very beginning and he only gets more corrupt as it goes on so there is a gradient but it's not a gradient from being in this grace state to being in this fallen state which is what you have with anakin is more with palpatine where he starts out corrupt but doing a very good job at hiding it and there's no like physical ramifications of that corruption on his appearance to then in revenge of the sith where he's this completely like deformed like golem like character <laughs> like because it's become so much a part of him that is literally like written into his skin like how evil he is at this point mm-hmm. and yeah like i i like it it makes him very fun to watch but it's also like makes him a good foil to anakin because it shows that anakin is not palpatine because you're never really meant to empathize with Palpatine in any way. No, the way he discards and uses people is just so repulsive. Like, I know it's not explored in The Phantom Menace, but he he groomed Maul too, you know? He, like, yeah. has these people who he targets from a young age, and, um, like, even Dooku, it's like he'll just discard them when they're no longer convenient for him, right? Yeah. It's gross. Exactly. They're just tools to him. Yeah, like, um, there's just one more thing I really want to bring up in relation to corruption in the prequels, and that is the corruption in the Jedi Order themselves. Mm. Because that's a big point that is made, that the Jedi didn't just fall because of external reasons, they fell because they'd kind of become corrupt themselves. And there was a lot of pride and arrogance involved. And obviously it's not to say that the Jedi were corrupt and that they were evil, but they were corrupt in that they'd kind of lost their way and they'd lost sight of what the Force was and what the role of the Jedi should be. And yeah, I just find that idea really interesting. And well, obviously this is a huge extrapolation, but I can't help but wonder if a part of Rey's purpose in Episode Nine will be to actually try and rediscover well, what were the Jedi like in ancient times? What should a Jedi be? What should characterise a Jedi? Obviously, I know we had that conversation about the books maybe not being too relevant, but I think that if they are relevant, it would literally just be as like a jumping off point. Mm. Like there wouldn't be like a half hour like sequence where we see like the books being decoded. Yeah, it's quite cool because like the prequels basically recontextualise what you understand Yoda and Obi-Wan to be in the original trilogy, in my opinion anyway. Because mm. you see that more as like their redemption through Luke as well, right? And yes. and Vader's too, obviously. But it's all tied together. It's like the mistakes of that generation had to be addressed by this young, optimistic, talented man. And then yes. we see that cycle again in the sequel trilogy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in some ways you can look at Qui-Gon and think that he's meant to be the ideal Jedi because he kind of doesn't necessarily just obey rules because they're the rules right he thinks for himself and trusts the force yes so it's my periodic reminder to please read the revenge of the sith novelization (laughs) sorry to keep banging this drum but it's so good um and it has some really amazing passages that talk about the darkness and i thought they were relevant to this discussion um so here's one it says the dark is generous and it is patient It is the dark that seeds cruelty into justice, that drips contempt into compassion, that poisons love with grains of doubt. The dark can be patient because the slightest drop of rain will cause those seeds to sprout. 
The rain will come, and the seas will sprout, for the dark is the soil in which they grow, and it is the clouds above them, and it waits behind the star that gives them light. The dark's patience is infinite. Eventually, even stars burn out. It's so beautiful. Yeah, and horrible. (laughs) Yeah. But it is this, like, steady drip that it can just be there and people wouldn't even necessarily notice until it's too late. And I feel like that is so applicable to real life, too, with the state of politics. Yeah, no, I think this is a really extraordinary passage. And it also reminds me of, like, another key thing that happens in the prequels, which is that it's not so much that Anakin's love for Padme is destructive. His love is so, like, intense that the moment, like, anything causes him to doubt it or, like, become afraid that he might lose it, that he just completely, like, goes crazy like and he like loses all his like focus and he becomes completely unreasonable Mm -hmm. because obviously he becomes paranoid that Padme and Obi-Wan are having an affair and that there's some kind of like romantic liaison going on with them behind his back yeah that's even clearer in the book right yeah no it's really stressed in Revenge of the Sith it becomes very very key is kind of there in the movie as well because obviously Anakin is very angry at Obi-Wan like when they encounter each other on Mustafar and that rage like makes more sense when you think of it in the context of like sexual jealousy Mm -hmm. um but yeah like it's really driven home as a through line in the novel and yeah again it just adds to the tragedy because it's not even that love itself is corrupting although I do think that's part of it because of Lucas's funny way of depicting romance um it's just as much about like love itself being corrupted and love doesn't last yeah and it resonates because we've all had those moments of insecurity and doubt right yeah um everyone can have something that like starts as this innocuous thought or concern about something and then it develops into an obsession and it can cause you to hurt other people um Yeah, it's very relatable. Yeah. And it comes up a lot of Anakin. Yeah. No, and it's such an amazing piece of work, that novel. Like, and as a depiction of the temptations of the dark side and how it can corrupt a person and, like, draw them away from what was originally, like, everything that mattered to them is extremely effective. Mm-hmm. I've got another part here, um, and it's obviously right at the end when he wakes up in the suit as Vader. Um, he says and you rage and scream and reach through the force to crush the shadow who has destroyed you but you are so far less than now than what you were you are more than half machine you are like a painter gone blind a composer gone deaf you can remember where the power was but the power you can touch is only a memory and so with all your world destroying fury it is only droids around you that implode and equipment and the table on which you were strapped shatters and in the end you cannot touch the shadow In the end, you don't even want to. In the end, the shadow is all you have left. Because the shadow understands you, the shadow forgives you, the shadow gathers you unto itself, and within your furnace heart, you burn in your own flame. God, okay, I really hate this because it really drives home the creepiness of Palpatine's effect on Anakin's life and how he's destroyed him, and yet Anakin is basically completely dependent on him at this point. Yeah, and you get this kind of explored later with the comics that came out last year, um, with that relationship that he like loathes him and also loves him in this horribly twisted way. Yeah, he needs him, and it's just awful. 
Yeah, I'm reading that. It really makes me think about how much that evokes what's going on with Ben and Snoke. Because obviously not all of this applies. He's <laughs> not like Snoke like gathered up like Kylo's tortured remains from like the side of a lava pit and then like rebuilt him as a robot. But I do think the shadow understands you, the shadow forgives you, the shadow gathers you onto itself. I think all of that exactly describes what Kylo would have been getting from Snoke, like when he turned. Because yeah, we know that he was feeling lonely. We know that he felt like no one understood him. We know that he felt alienated. And I'm yeah. pretty sure that Snoke will have preyed upon those feelings. I don't have them to hand, but there's some pretty lengthy passages in the Last Jedi novelization where Snoke is... It's from his perspective, and he's reminiscing on how he targeted the Skywalker family via Ben Solo. He knew mm. that he had these weaknesses and insecurities, and his parents and Luke weren't always there and understood what was going on. Yeah, and it was very intentional, and yeah. it evoked a lot of this. Like it, it felt like what Palpatine had done with Anakin. Yeah, right. And then we move on to the original trilogy, and I'd kind of say that in the original trilogy, corruption is at least prevalent as a theme, because in the prequels we see corruption like as a process. We see like this character start out as this beautiful, innocent little child. And we see him become this like evil monster who's just this like mass of like rage and fury and pain. Like, you know, and that's obviously a complete downward trajectory. Whereas in the original trilogy, like the corrupt state is just mostly the status quo for the villains. There's like this very clear delineation between the bad guys who are very clearly corrupt. They're like either like a monstrous looking robot man, like Vader. Or they're like a monstrous looking man-man, like Palpatine. <laughs> There's like no ambiguity in it, basically. And then all the heroes are all young and good looking and healthy. You know, so. Yeah, it's like we see the after effects of that corruption from Anakin through Luke's eyes, right? Uh, especially as Vader becomes humanized to him as he understands that he is his father and what happened with the Jedi. Um, yeah. And you get the the classic corruption as temptation for Luke in his own hero's journey but yeah it's obviously not the same way because it's the reverse of that journey Danikin yeah he's ascendant exactly and there's no like indication that Luke is really tempted by Vader's offer to join him like he's very resolute in denying that he's most tempted when Vader basically implies that he's going to target Leia next, right? So, again, it yeah. kind of plays into that idea of, oh, you can succumb to the darkness out of this sense of loyalty and attachment to others. Because yeah. that's when Luke gets to the point where he could probably kill Vader. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because he kind of gives in to the dark side even as he is trying to like resist and fight back against the dark side. Yeah. And the irony is that you don't win the dark side by fighting against it, not like that, because then you're giving in to your rage and your passionate emotions. And Luke ultimately wins by throwing aside his weapon and like refusing to like engage in that way. And saving what he loves. Exactly. Thank you, Rose Tico. Yeah, I mean I think obviously the the bulk of the OT and mm. like Luke and Vader's relationship is to kind of stress that while Vader fell, he can come back too. There yes. is always that opportunity. And it, like by the end of Return of the Jedi, he doesn't really have anything to live for in terms of, like he dies because there's yeah. nothing left for him. And he, 
um, I think George Lucas has said, his sins were too great for him to like go on living, but yeah. it was still worth him making that choice and still yes. recognizing and accepting the love that his son had for him. Yeah. No, you're right. And I think that the contrast between the fates of Palpatine and the fates of Vader, they show that corruption like doesn't necessarily mean like there's only one future lying ahead for you. There's still like that possibility of making a good choice. Like I think it perhaps depends on how far that corruption has gone because we never even saw the vaguest like glimmer of like hope for Palpatine. <laughs> there is no interest in like fostering sympathy there. Obviously, there is a lot of effort put into like giving Vader humanity and making us like feel like empathy for him, at least through his relationship with Luke. Yeah, I think it's love for Luke and love for himself that returns as well. Like deciding that he was worth that, that he was worthy of being good again. Yeah, exactly. He kind of like gets in touch with that part of himself once more, which is pretty powerful. Um, right, then I think, let's see, did you write anything in, on the original trilogy in your section? Yours is mostly about the sequel trilogy and the prequels, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't have a ton to say, but I'm also yeah. conscious of, like, maybe glossing over it too much. I don't know if there's, like, a, a term more we can elaborate I on. I really don't think it's a big, like, aspect of it, to be honest. Yeah, like you say, it's the default state that we're coming into it with that like the empire is corrupt yeah exactly so it's a thing to be defeated and overcome and that's what happens so it's not much more to it than that so yeah i would say that corruption like as a theme returns much much more to the fore with the sequel trilogy it kind of takes a nap while the original trilogy is going <laughs> on and yeah then it becomes way more prevalent in the sequels and I think it does really interesting things of it because when The Force Awakens starts, like it does almost look like you're just getting a redo of the status quo from the original trilogy because obviously you have this kind of like new kind of imperial organization in the First Order. You have the new Palpatine equivalent in um, Snoke and you have the new Vader equivalent in Kylo Ren. And so you think that you're looking at all the same like power structures, dynamics and like character archetypes. But then I'd say that like everything changes the moment that Kylo takes that mask off and you suddenly see that the face of this like villain, this like supposedly corrupt character is actually like pure looking, like handsome looking, you know, like it is not the face that you would expect to be underlying that that mask because in the previous Star Wars movies like that fall, that corrupt state that is always like aligned with some sort of physical deformity. So you're either like elderly, like um like Dooku or Palpatine or like a bunch of other random elderly dudes that I'm sure I'm forgetting the names of. Um, you are like more machine than man like Vader, or you are horrendously deformed like Palpatine because of the force lightning incident. And yeah, it's something new to see this face of the dark side of this face of corruption as something that's so attractive and appealing and also something quite innocent. Like, I think it absolutely like changes things and it raises interesting questions. Like, yeah. What do you think about that moment? Mm -hmm. You've got to love those problematic fairy tale tropes. <laughs> where <laughs> Beauty is goodness. Um, yes. I think it's like that you're coming into the prequel story 
at the point where Anakin becomes Vader, right? Like it's like watching what would happen right after Revenge of the Sith had he not fall into the lava pit or if he just met Padme at that moment, right? Yeah. So it's really intriguing because it's a new twist on this story. Um, and yeah. you think you know where you stand. Like you say, it sets it up so that it's like, oh, he's just like Vader, wants to be Vader, but he's not. It's at a very different time in his life. And yes. we've already, the fall has already happened, but the audience doesn't know what happened. Yeah. Um, so it's slowly revealed throughout. So the corruption in the sequel trilogy relates to all of the characters to an extent. In The Last Jedi, so many of them face these tests where they are tempted to do things that they probably shouldn't do. Um, yeah. Even characters like Poe. Um, so, yeah, it's very prevalent and it works in all of these intriguing ways. And it does play on the expectations the audience has. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, age-wise as well, because, like, Kylo is obviously older than Anakin was when he fell, and as we've observed, Kylo has already fallen, but he's also much, much younger than Vader was in the original trilogy, and he certainly comes across as much younger. Like, you find people saying he's absurdly young, much younger than he was intended to be, because he was coded to be, like, almost adolescent, kind of. Yeah, it's interesting because he's, what, is he, like, ten years older than Rey? So there's a larger age gap than with Anakin and Padme, but like you say, the way the characters are written and coded, they are positioned as equals on a level that obviously Anakin wasn't quite with Padme at the beginning of their trilogy, but also not in the same way that Vader and Luke were positioned as well. Yeah. So it's a totally new dynamic. Exactly. So I think the age of Kylo, and especially the age at which he comes across, I think that means that we are essentially seeing like a coming of age story for him. Like, just as much as we're seeing a coming-of-age story for Rey, like, we're seeing these young people, like, discover themselves and get to grips with who they are. Um, in a way that that was never the case with Vader in the original trilogy, because he was just this monolithic, static character. For the most part, obviously, he changes at the very end, but he was not really going on an arc or a journey until, like, that last turn inspired by his son, Whereas, like, Kylo, he's a very, very dynamic character and he's constantly, like, evolving and changing depending on everything he experiences and goes through. Mm-hmm. And in that way, he's much more like Anakin because we're really seeing how he's impacted by his relationships with others and how they're like, alt- constantly altering his path and causing him to reassess things and make new decisions. Yeah, definitely. With characters like Finn, that corruption is presented as something that he comes from but has managed to escape in terms of his own morality. Like yeah. you you never get the sense because of the way that they kind of present it with Finn, he's always good. Um, yes. and he's escaping this external dark force that has shaped his life, but yeah. he's not tempted in the same way that someone like Kylo obviously is. But what's really great about her story in The Last Jedi is that he's tempted by this thing that seems good on the surface in terms of wanting to um, preserve his own safety, raise safety, and the way that he talks with DJ. Like, it's kind of insidious, this, oh, well, you should just look out for yourself because everyone else is. Mm. Um, and that is what's tempting to Finn. It's not darkness. It's this self-interest that can seem totally fine, totally acceptable to to people in real life, right? That we go about yeah. our daily business, and you can you can just look away. And Finn realizes that he can't, but that's a potentially corrupting force for him. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like, so all the characters are tested, 
And I think that Ray and Finn, they're both characters who are shown to be like subject to attempts to corrupt them from a certain point of view. Yeah. So like you say, with Finn, it's DJ trying to corrupt him into that state of like apathy and selfishness. And then with Ray, it's arguably Kylo trying to corrupt her to the dark side. Well, that's the thing about Ray's story. It's so interesting because it really depends on what perspective you're looking at it from. Because yeah. a, a lot of the audience will be looking at it from Luke's perspective. And he clearly sees Kylo as this corrupting force. And you even have like that cut line oh, you were opening yourself to the dark side for a pair of pretty eyes, right? <laughs> that's yes. Obviously, that's a theme and subtext within the story anyway, but that line would have really driven it home. Um, yes. The, from Luke's perspective, Kylo is this evil manipulative force who's going to seduce his you know, new uh, apprentice away after yeah. having fallen himself. Um, but... Ray doesn't see it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she's just trying to figure out the truth. And she, I think Daisy's talked about this before. She, she do, She's not bothered about the dark and light. That's not really um, Ray's central dilemma. It's figuring out where she belongs. Yeah. I think Ray is a very empathetic person. And I think she looks at things very much on the human level. So she's much more interested in Kylo as an individual, as a person rather than being interested in him is like oh you're the dark lord like of course like at first there's like an attempt to like view him in this very binary basic way like oh you murder a snake and, and that sort of thing but yeah as she like spends more time with him and like hears what he has to say and realizes he is more complex than that she does become more open to actually talking to him as an equal and hearing what he has to say and it's interesting because when you see those moments between them they are in my opinion depicted as a good thing they're not shown as sinister they're shown as quite like profound and like intimate and special they're like these almost beautiful moments between them to be honest and yeah it's such a transformation if you compare it to like the anakin and padme scenes from attack of the clones (laughs) because where that's all very like blunt and on the nose with all oh, this is a seduction with this beautiful woman like enticing him to break his jedi vows Ooh. like <laughs> which you know is I mean? so but funny same... because that's not yeah that's not how things are from padme's perspective she's not like trying to seduce anakin she's yeah, actually trying to not succumb herself but yeah like I, I agree with you that it's it's presented very differently and it's yeah. about these two characters who come together in a shared sense of loneliness and yeah. there's even with you know that they touch hands and they see each other's future but it's not like oh well i need to trick him to coming to the light side and i need to trick her and seduce her to the dark side it's that they yeah. genuinely both believe that that's where the other belongs with them yeah so exactly it's a it's corruption if you want to look at it from that perspective but it's also really not yeah. or you can even look at it as like kylo is being corrupted toward the light right because the way that snoke talks with this sense of real arrogance and presuming like oh kylo's still going to be loyal to me um Mm. it is this notion that he is being tempted by the light and that was obviously first established in the force awakens but it's expanded on in a really great way yeah i i think that is interesting how they both basically make each other's lives more complicated (laughs) yeah um because yeah i think they both desperately wanted to have this clear view of the world and like clear perception of what their futures were and what their destinies were 
but then through their interactions with each other they're like hey maybe that's not the way it has to be maybe this can be done differently if we work together and like function as equals as we're meant to be like and for Ray that is like things will go differently because then I will get Ben Solo back and then we can work together to destroy Snoke in the First Order and everything will be fine and dandy and for Kylo that's like if I can get Ray to come to my side then we can destroy Snoke and we can lead the First Order in order to make the galaxy better and I think they're both genuinely well-intentioned with that it's just that their goals and ambitions are completely different and Kylo's is much more morally questionable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't work out. Yeah, I mean, that's like the role of the Animus in the heroine's journey, right? So this idea of Kylo corrupting Rey, it's actually just about them both influencing each other's development and challenging their perceptions. So yeah. um, like it, going back to Valerie Frankel, we talk about the heroine journey obviously when she's talking about like the marriage to the animus with Rey and Kylo meeting in The Force Awakens the emphasis is on how they're shapeshifters in each other's journey and they're the other half so there's like this contrasting idea of them being opposites with different desires and emotions that don't necessarily fit together but you can get a taste of the fact that they could so yeah. that you root for the resolution of that conflict over time right so they give us that throne room scene and then they snatch it away. So that's what you know the the end goal to be, that they should be working side by side and combined with the visions that they had too. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's so good because it really is presented as this thing that like, if you, you, know, you look at that teaser poster, you can see Luke and Kylo presented as these giant, almost godlike figures in Rey's story. And it's the devil and the angel, except it's not that simple. Yeah. Exactly. And it's really pretty fabulously well done in terms of that. There was more I wanted to say. There's always more I want to say. Sensually oh. predatory Satan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we we just want to give it up here for number one Adam Driver slash Kylo Ren Stan, Peter Bradshaw, the Guardian film critic, for calling Kylo sensually predatory Satan. You know... <laughs> Which is amazing. It is amazing. Like I agree in essence because Milton Satan could get it. But <laughs> it also implies that Kylo has game and he most certainly does not. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I get where you're going, but he's not as smooth as he would like to think he is. Yeah. Like I think Peter Bradshaw's like deep and profound love for Kylo Ren like sometimes blinds him to the fact that Kylo Ren's Kylo Ren doesn't really have it together (laughs) he's closer to Anakin than Vader for sure yeah exactly it's like come on he's literally like sliding into corridors on his socks we're not talking about some kind of like super like accomplished genius in this situation he's not a Palpatine I know I'm preaching to the choir here but I this is what is so amazing about Kylo's character that they really have this duality and depending on your perspective and your interest in the story you can pick up on certain things and minimize others right yeah but the beauty of this character is that he's all these things at once and yes. he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing um yeah it makes for very compelling viewing definitely and there is that and there are absolutely like Lucifer vibes going on with Kylo in the last Jedi oh yeah because that's the Byronic hero thing right yeah no exactly and if you think about that like temptation of like ray and appealing to like her loneliness and the things that he knows are her pressure points that's exactly what like satan does in paradise lost with eve (laughs) 
like when he's trying to like say hey you know who you want to like be with and who's like the coolest dude here it's not that god it's like me woo <laughs> and of course like in Paradise Lost like Lucifer slash Satan whatever you want to call him is shown to be like beautiful and appealing and seductive yeah I think so, the stuff is yeah. there on a subtextual level for sure is that yes. almost actually it's on the nose sometime because you really do have Luke as like this angry god bursting in and stuff like that right <laughs> yeah um and yeah Ray is that figure in the middle who is tempted by things and trying to figure out what she wants and it's yeah, I think there's all sorts of things going on in the story and we've picked apart a lot of them, but you can just talk about it forever, really. Yeah, no, exactly. There's a lot going on. I just want to say that it's, in, it's handled very interestingly because you almost see Ray going through the same temptation that Luke does in the original trilogy. But I think that the presentation of that temptation in The Last Jedi is so much more complex and interesting than what Luke goes through in Empire Strikes Back. Because the offer that Vader makes, it's very much like out of the blue. There's no real like build up to that moment. They have a fight, like Luke's like about to like die and he's clearly at Vader's mercy. And at that point Luke's not invested in Vader's redemption either, whereas Rey is actively trying to get Kylo on her side. Oh yeah, no no, like so yeah, basically what I'm trying to like argue for is that in the original trilogy, it's completely out of the blue. There's no build-up to it. Mm. Whereas in The Last Jedi, it's all about that build-up. Yeah. It's all about trying to like justify and legitimise that moment where he makes the offer to her to like join him. Yeah. Because I think that in The Empire Strikes Back, it gets away with it because obviously it has that I am your father moment. And the sequel trilogy doesn't have that. Rey and Kylo are not related the reveal of Ray's parentage is an anti-reveal almost, right? That, that yeah. it was what she knew it to be and what we knew it to be all along. Yeah, exactly. And basically because Ray is not related, like you, there needs to be something else there for us to buy that Kyla would make this offer, to buy that he would actually be invested in corrupting her like this so that he can get her to join him. And so the like way we are invested in that is by seeing them just connect as people as individuals like and as potential romantic partners to be honest so, mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, it's interesting it's an emotional plea on both sides it's genuine and yeah that's what gives it that emotional weight yeah that... and it's much more compelling to me to be honest for that reason because you go into that like plea from kylo to ray with that investment and desperately wanting them to be together somehow and then like dreading it when it goes so badly wrong you know because you know when he starts making that speech to her like saying join me and we will blah 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 blah. like you know that everything's falling apart at that moment and it breaks your heart because you've had all that time to invest in their relationship and want them to work together and want them to be together and then it all goes wrong Mm -hmm. yep you're supposed to think that all is lost at this point yeah exactly Sorry, I'm pushing the pain train right now. <laughs> choo choo. The Last Jedi is a pain train. Oh, it is. Like, oh, it was so bad. I was like at the premiere screen, and I was like, oh no, you don't. Oh no, you don't. Oh, you are. You are. Oh crap. <laughs> oh, it was so annoying. I love it because that's what people have come away from discussing. No matter what side of the debate they're on, this is the central argument now. And yeah. that's that's what I wanted after the Force Awakens, and you, yeah, it's that that's the the struggle of the trilogy for these yeah. two people to resolve their intensely personal conflict. 
definitely. And I also just want to touch upon the corruption of Ben Solo, because I think that the way that is depicted in The Last Jedi is so fascinating, because obviously we get that little Rashomon where we see Luke standing over Ben and brandishing the lightsaber. And I just love how like Ben Solo is depicted in that moment, because he is just so innocent looking. Yeah, it's interesting because Luke says, oh, Snoke had already turned his heart. And supposedly mm. he looks into his mind and sees all the suffering that Kylo will inevitably cause. But yeah. the way he's actually presented is, like you say, so innocent. He's dressed in white, he's sleeping, he looks so young. Yeah. No, exactly. And I've seen such emotive responses to that scene, like on forums and Reddit posts. People saying, like, Luke standing over that sleeping child. Oh, how could he, like, consider killing such an innocent person? And all this kind of thing. And to me, that shows that Ryan Johnson did a great job with that. Because you are not looking at the evil monster Kylo Ren in that scene. You're looking at innocent little Ben Solo and thinking, how could Luke even possibly begin to threaten him like that? And I think it's particularly troubling because while we're told that Snoke is the one who's responsible for Ben's fall, we never see Snoke corrupting Ben. There are no flashbacks where Snoke is like, ooh, come into my parlour, young Solo, and I'll show you some things. You know, like the only thing we see in Ben's past, the inciting incident towards his fall into darkness, is that moment of Luke standing over him. And I think that almost positions it like Luke is the one who's responsible for corrupting his nephew. And that's especially hard for people to deal with. It's one thing telling people that Snoke did it. And it's another thing actually presenting it is, well, Luke had a big part to play as well, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's down to what they choose to show us, right? So logically, and he says that Snoke's already turned his heart, but what we see is Luke's part in it. And the the implication there is that it was this like self-fulfilling prophecy where Luke is corrupted by the fear that he has, yeah. which I, I love the parallel there with Anakin, to be honest. Um, mm. And he's he's trying to do the right thing. Um, and yeah, it stops himself in time, but the damage is done. Yeah, And I think that's a very scary thing because it's like, we're just like seconds away at any moment from doing something that can have these knock-on effects for for years to come and that Luke really really struggles to accept about himself yeah and it shows that you can think about yourself as a good person and you can still be that corrupting influence in someone's life Mm -hmm. and that just like the slightest error of judgment can send everything spiraling out of control yeah good people can do bad things I think people often can identify as oh well I'm a good person and therefore I wouldn't do this or whatever it's like it's it's much more complicated than that <laughs> like yeah um and the way we should think about these characters too that Luke is incredibly relatable in the last jedi and it comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show because he's shown to make these mistakes and experience profound regret but yeah. also ultimately chooses to do the right thing and atone as best he can even as he acknowledges that he can't be the one to bring Ben back. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably a good point to end it on. Would you agree? I guess. I mean, we could keep talking forever, but we have things we need to go and do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we have lives to lead. Um, but yeah, no, I feel like that was a good show and I definitely enjoyed that theme. We should definitely do spotlights of this more often. Yeah, I think we're going to end up getting into a bit of a dry spell over the next few weeks. So if people have ideas for themes that they'd like us to discuss or just elements from 
the movies or books or whatever that you would like us to cover, let us know. And if you have ideas on corruption based on what we've been talking about, email us too. Yeah, no, definitely. We really would love to hear from you guys because, yeah, it would be nice to make the show more participatory. And yeah, for that, we need you guys to get involved. So please do. To close off the show, I'm Rachel. You can find me at Styles Nonsense on Tumblr and at Journal of the Styles on WordPress. Where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr, Kirsty of Jakku on Twitter, and we're Scavengers Horde on Twitter as well. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, bye! Bye!